happy, happy, happy new year as it continues. I am really thrilled to have as guest today someone I've been following for a while, and a lot of other people have too, a man called Christopher Rufo, who, I don't know, I mean, according to most of the mainstream media, has single-handedly created the entire movement against critical race theory, which was, which was news to me since I've been banging on about it for years before I ever heard of Christopher J. Rufo. But nonetheless, they had to find somebody to to pin all this on, and they've managed to pin it on Mr. Rufo. Congratulations, Christopher, on being the mastermind behind this massive, sinister campaign to take over American education and culture. I, I appreciate that. That's a that's high praise. <laughs> and, and welcome to the Dishcast as well. Christopher works officially at the Manhattan for the Manhattan Institute, writes for City Journal, is in Seattle as we speak, in lovely Seattle. And welcome. And before we begin, let's begin where we always begin here, Christopher, because uh, is it Christopher or Chris? Either one's fine. Either one. Uh, tell, me, tell me where you grew up and what your parents did and, 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 and where and how your childhood and adolescence was. Yeah, I, I grew up in Sacramento, California. My father is an immigrant from Italy. My mother was a transplant from Detroit, Michigan. And my childhood was the kind of typical Sacramento childhood. Sacramento is in California, but uh, it's in the Central Valley. It's the state capital. It's, it's really a kind of bureaucratic town, pretty sleepy, but a great place to grow up, a great place to, to be a kid. And, you know, my parents were, are, were both attorneys since retired. And so I always had a bit of law, politics, bureaucracy in the household, always talked about it. My, my, my father was involved in democratic politics after he immigrated from Italy, would always tell stories, you know, from, from the World War II stories, from the family history, you know, my, my own grandfather and continues to this day, all my aunts and uncles are dedicated Marxist, Leninist, unreformed communists. You're another one of these people. Like, it's like, how many more conservatives do I have to come across who come from long lines of Marxist, Leninist? I, yeah. I seem to be the only one, normie one, just sort of just grew up basically right of center. They were only, were they Gramsci and what were they? They, they, they were and they are, you know, so my, my, my kind of aunts and uncles who live now in Rome, I remember when I was 11, I went to visit visit them in their apartment in Rome and on my aunt's bookshelf, she had the complete collected works of Lenin. And so that Lenin? was my, of Lenin, yeah. And <laughs> and when I was 13, they gave me as a gift, I went and visited in the summer in our in our family's ancestral village and they bought me at the market, a, the Che Guevara red flag, hasta la victoria siempre. And so that was a bit of the the background. And I, I thought it was pretty cool at the time. It felt transgressive. It felt foreign. It felt exciting. And then, of course, you know, my politics shifted dramatically. But that was, in some ways, the, the, the starting point. When did your father immigrate and, and why? In the 1960s. And he came as a teenager with his, his mother and father. And th they were fleeing what at the time was the post-war devastation of Italy. All, a lot of my relatives of that generation couldn't find work in Italy, couldn't sustain a family. It was very difficult. Our village today is, still has buildings that are rubbled from World War II and were never rebuilt. And so I had relatives that went to Tanzania, Saudi Arabia, Australia, the United Canada, the United States. And so they settled in Philadelphia, and that's where he spent uh, his high school years and then beyond. 
Right. So he so he basically immigrated with his with his parents. So yeah. you're kind of kind of third gen. Did he speak? With, did he always speak English, or, or, or did, did he? It is in the in the home. Did you speak Italian? Yeah, actually, I, I spoke Italian in the home when I was growing up, and I speak in Italian with my kids as they're growing up. So huh. we're trying to keep, and I think we have successfully kept the language uh, alive. Uh, my goal is a hundred years. That's my own goal is to keep the Italian language and culture alive in my family for a hundred years from my father's immigration. Huh. Well, that's kind of moving in a way, I suppose. You cultural separatist and identity <laughs> politics mongerer, not letting yeah. go of your your ethnic uh, identity for a broad American citizenship. But tell me, where'd you, when, so you, you went through high school and you go to college? Where do you go to college? You're, Georgetown. Oh, so tell me about that. Was that where your politics began to emerge? And were you, are you, did you have any Catholic background? I, I mean, obviously you did insofar as it, it, any Italian family has Catholic background, but you, you, you were, you were on the commie side. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, certainly Catholic background, you know, grew up Catholic, went through the, the, the process, but I, I really went to Georgetown with the interest in, in politics much more than the religion and left-wing politics, got involved in some of the left-wing groups. And I, I think the, my political evolution really took a turn during those years for two reasons. One is I, I, I felt that a lot of the left-wing campus groups, I, I just couldn't participate with any sense of seriousness because you have at, at Georgetown, really the, the sons and daughters of America's elites. You know, you have everyone in business, finance, the kind of prep school crowd come to campus and then play act as revolutionaries and play act as left-wing activists. And it struck me as on a personal level, just this phony political expression, because you knew that these kids in two, three years would kind of take off the, the kafia or the, the red bandana and become investment bankers. And at the same time, I think I, I, I realized my own kind of personality or my own idiosyncrasies the other side of it, the kids who were, you know, wearing the, the the pink shorts and spending their days as Capitol Hill interns, the idea of joining that bureaucracy, I just couldn't stomach it. And so those were those twin impulses of that environment, of that, of that milieu just set me away from politics for the next decade. I, I didn't really participate in it, was was uh turned away. A lot of the ideas that I had entered the university with just didn't work by the time I had left. Give me, give me an example of one of those ideas that was captivated you in college that kind of dissipated by the time you moved on. I, I think it was really kind of perhaps less an intellectual question at that time than a cultural question. The mm -hmm. culture of the academic left, the postmodern left, the elite left, just, just, just struck me as something that was... Uh, built on such a thin and flimsy foundation that I felt mm -hmm. like my participation in it was was just uh, totally inauthentic. And there are some moments that I'm that I'm mm. proud of. You know, I I, I I did the big marches in D.C. at that time against the Iraq War. I th still think that was the right right position. But I just couldn't. You know, public school background from California the kind of Ivy League style elite liberalism just struck me as, as, as bankrupt political expression. And even in contrast to my own family members in Italy who were 
kind of died in the wool, serious, rigorous, intellectual leftists who practiced culturally what they were preaching politically. At, at least I think they're wrong. I still think they're wrong. But it struck me at least as authentic. But the idea that the sons and daughters of, of Blackwater executives could be an authentic expression of left-wing ideology just didn't hold up. And mm -hmm. so I wasn't certainly at that time on the right. Campus conservatives struck me as even more kind of cringy and 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 preposterous. But and those 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 pink shorts were not an option for you. W weren't an option. No, they <laughs> they they weren't. You know, uh, I do remember yeah. them. I I used to get the G two bus that, uh, that would go from Georgetown when I was when I was an intern back in the in the eighties, and the phalanxes of these young interns, these these fresh faced. <laughs> young, preppy. I remember just thinking, "Wow, it's so it's so American." Yeah, they all look alike. They're all so strapping and corn-fed. They all wear the same clothes. I was. This is new to me. This is a total subculture to me from England, where student culture couldn't have been more more different. But it was, and and, and it's it amazing. It's like you're 18 years old, and you're already you know, captured by the country club. I mean, you're already yeah. there. You're, you come out of high school fully formed as, as, a, as a kind of country club establishment uh, stand. Yeah. Say again? Um, you're Brett Kavanaugh, basically. That's who you are at that point and having a good time. So, so what do you do in your 20s? So my 20s after I left, left school, I was a bit rudderless, a bit, a bit kind of directionless. And I fell into working as a documentary producer. The thing mm. that I wanted to do at that time was just get out into the world and to see kind of the, the furthest stretches of the globe. And so the way that I was able to do that was through documentary producing. Over the next decade, I produced films for PBS, produced a film that sold to Netflix. I worked on films for the cable channels like National Geographic and had a chance to really see the world. I saw uh, all through Asia, Latin America, Africa, Europe, spent kind of years overseas and, and, and really got a chance to extend myself into something that was totally foreign and give myself a, a, a bit of a point of comparison for all the different political systems, all the different cultures and social systems uh, in, in every part of the world. Hmm. And well, that's, I mean, whenever anyone asks you, to, if someone in their 20s says, what should I do? I'm like, do anything, just get out there. Your 20s, yeah. you can't really do anything wrong. You, you just, you just got to find as much experience as possible. And then your 30s, you kind of realize what you've actually got to get. Your, but that sounds like, a, now at some point though, you were at the Discovery Institute. That's what it says in your Wikipedia, which, is, which sets off lots of like alarm bells among people. Tell me, how did that come about? What, what, where was your connection there? Yeah. So I guess now, maybe five years ago, I started to working in the documentary film world, all of the problems that we see today, all of the fashionable left-wing political ideologies that we're seeing in K through 12 schools and universities and in, in government agencies, they had already started to establish themselves in the documentary industry. It's a very left-wing industry. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the times I kept my own political opinion and evolution quiet, didn't feel a need to, to share it. But as I started to really politically shift and to start thinking that, hey, this is something important to me, I realized that my days in the documentary world were numbered. In order for me to actually create the work that I wanted to create that I thought was important, I knew that it would be kind of verboten, it would be unacceptable in that industry. And so I was looking for ways to shift careers and mm. wanted to start getting involved in 
political and social issues more directly. And so I, I linked up with the, a great person named Bruce Chapman, who was census director under Reagan, longtime uh, political hand. He ran for governor of Washington state and he became a mentor of mine and funded some early research and reporting on homelessness and Seattle and other West Coast cities and was really this first step in, in getting into politics and out of pure documentary filmmaking. And eventually he asked me to become a part-time and then a full-time fellow at Discovery Institute, which he co-founded with George Gilder, the great uh, author of the 1980s. And so that's really when my own political work began. I worked for Bruce under his Center on Wealth and Poverty, looking specifically at homelessness, addiction, mental illness, and crime in America's West Coast cities. Wow. A subject that has not exactly lost salience over, over the last several years. I had Sam Quinones on here recently talking about some of these awful, awful situations in, in West Coast cities with open-air drug markets and homelessness and, and new powerful strains of methamphetamine that is, is, is turning people's brains into, into powder. But the Discovery Institute is a, is a creation, is, isn't it originally sort of creationist? Is, Gilder was not a creationist, was he? You know, I, I, I think that they would likely dispute the label creationist, which of course has negative connotations. Their, their preferred term, and again, this is not, was not my work there, was not involved in, in, any, in any way, but intelligent design, the idea that the, the structure of the universe and human observation leads to the conclusion that there must be some first, first mover, a first cause. That, that demonstrates vast intelligence in, in the creation. And I think it's not uh, explicitly a, uh, a, a religious view in their mind. It's derived from observation. You'd have to ask them, but, but that is part of their work. And, you know, when I, when I joined, I certainly had my own ideas, my own hesitations, kind of, if you read the Wikipedia page, my Wikipedia page too is not great. But, but I, I think that in working with them for about a year, great people, serious people supported my work on on homelessness, and and I think that you know I have no 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 complaints, no hesitations in in working with them. What was your what was your major thing that you discovered about homelessness that that was that was surprising to you, or that became central to your ideas? about homelessness and where that comes from? There's a few things. When you look at homelessness um, on the West Coast cities, you, you, you first really encounter this paradox. Some cities like Seattle, for example, spends roughly, if you total up all of the public and private spending in the region, they spend roughly $80,000 per year per homeless individual. So this is an enormous sum of money. It's north of a billion dollars a year for a population, a revolving population of about 12,000. And so you're left with this, this, this problem. You're left with this question. How is it possible that you have enough money to, to put each person well above the median income, and yet you have this constantly expanding and deepening issue with people living on the streets? And so you can quickly pretty much rule out any of the any of the existing diagnoses that are popular among the progressive left. There's not enough budget that on its face can be dismissed. But even this is a housing problem. Housing is unaffordable. If you look a little bit deeper, you say, well, if you have $80,000 a year per person, even in a hot housing market like San Francisco or LA or Seattle, there's enough money if you really wanted to just, just uh, treat it as a pure material uh, problem, 
But also, if you look at the survey data, you find out that actually in less than 10% of cases do the homeless uh, individuals themselves claim that it's because of uh, rent increases or exorbitant housing prices that led them on the streets. And so you've really pretty much ruled out the economic or material causes of homelessness. And then you have to look in the deeper and more complex causes. One of the things that I did is I spent a lot of time out on the streets talking to people, working with the service providers, spending time in shelters, tagging along with police or law enforcement officers. And you pretty quickly can understand something that is obvious to everyone within that environment, within that subculture. It's driven by the catastrophic breakdown of family. It's driven by addiction to alcohol, opiates, and methamphetamines. And it's, and it's driven by a culture of the black market. So you have the drug trade, you have the, the sex trade and human trafficking. You have the black market in, in goods that, that really sustains this economy. So shop, shoplifting, other property crimes. And then you have a policy environment in these cities that very clearly says, we are going to pretend this is a material problem and we are going to de-stigmatize, decriminalize, and de-police any of the social, psychological, and cultural problems that could be driving this. And so when you put those two things together, you have a very clear uh, mismatch between problem and solution. But, but, but worse than that, you actually have solutions that incentivize the problem. And then that's really right. what can answer that initial question. How is it that we spend somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000 a year for every person on the street, and yet this problem keeps getting worse and worse and worse year after year? Do you think there's a, a beginning of a, a, a moment in these cities in which uh, a hefty majority begins to say, we're done with this stuff. It's really destroying the quality of our lives, the, the quality of our cities. I mean, I just saw the DA, the new DA in New York City, basically say that basically no more prison time for a whole range of, of crimes. Uh, there's some complication about that that maybe I, I think there's some complication with the law in which they're, they're all automatically supposed to be prisonable and but anyway it's it's more complicated but the general view is now is the time to let up on as a way for creating social justice and and i feel i the last year and a half i've just become radicalized about this i'm just if i i take my own internal temperature on this stuff and i gotta say i think there's gonna be a big 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 wave of of, of opposition to this stuff i mean especially from people of color, so to speak, for people who are actually in the line of fire of this, this crime wave, people who are being stolen from, attacked, assaulted, have their friends and relatives living in terror all the time, that there's going to be a, a big right-wing backlash pretty soon in these cities. Is that possible in San Francisco? Is it possible in Seattle? That's a, that's a really complicated question. And I think the most important point to understand in looking at that question is that there's probably a big imbalance or a big discrepancy between majority public opinion and then public policy as it's enacted. So if you look at public opinion in California, in San Francisco, in Seattle, it's pretty clear that a strong majority of voters, they want to criminalize and prevent street camping. They want to have a bit tougher approach to homelessness, addiction, and property crimes. And they want prosecutors and law enforcement to take especially violent crimes seriously. But 
that majority public opinion is not translated into electoral victories or to public policy because there is a far left progressive dominance of the institutional players that interrupts that from being a direct one-to-one relationship. And so all of the institutions, if you look at Seattle or San Francisco, from the permanent bureaucracy that's, that's cropped up around these issues, from the activist organizations, to many of the wealthiest people who fund these initiatives, to the nonprofits, to the local media, to, the, to, to oftentimes even to the point where you're having left-wing nonprofit organizations sponsoring sections of the local newspapers, which are on the verge of catastrophic financial circumstances, and then embedding left-wing opinions as hard news. You, you, you really have left-wing institutional and ideological dominance that, that is able to maintain power even in the face of theoretically majority opposition. And so you have some bright spots. The city of Seattle actually elected a, a city prosecutor who is a Republican for the first time in, in more than a generation. But you see then the machine moving around, trying to not only maintain the status quo, but double down on the status quo. And you see in San Francisco a, a three-part political philosophy led by Chisabuddin, of course, the famous descendant of the Weather Underground, who is de-police, decarcerate, and decriminalize. Those are the three things. It's really saying this idea that emerged in the 1960s in Black liberation ideology, Black Panther ideology, that in order to achieve the revolution, in order to overthrow capitalism, to overthrow the establishment, we first have to overthrow the mechanisms of the fascist power which is law enforcement with the prosecutor's office. And for these cities, they have dominance in almost everywhere else. They, they view this, this criminal justice enterprise, which is really kind of shattering the institutions of criminal justice, as the last remaining institution that prevents their domination, that prevents them from realizing the utopia. And so this is a very serious political goal. And they're willing to take public pressure to a certain extent, they're willing even to see what I think is a dramatic rise in crime, what is a dramatic rise in violence, and even homicides in predominantly black neighborhoods. I, I think in their calculation, that's worth the cost. It's a temporary problem that is, that is justified because their outcome that they're trying to achieve is so central to their ideology. And we have seen in, in really important centrist institutions defenses of street violence, open defenses of looting, the refusal to call a riot a riot. And one, this is one of the, the, the real problems I had you know, at New York Magazine. They wouldn't let me use the word to describe the reality. And, but here, here's what I want to get at, really, because this is, captures also the CRT thing. This is true of the entire American establishment. Right? When we say the establishment, we mean the educated classes. From corporate America through academic America, through governing America, it is captured by a particular rather extreme form of progressivism. And now I want to know how, why <laughs> this has happened. I mean, this, this, this is, it, it, these, these ideas are actually, when you look at the full spectrum of possibilities, really quite niche ideas in a way. The denial of human agency, really, the notion that society is really a system of structural 
systems that that grind people up. All the kind of stuff that your grandparents were also interested in not so long ago. How do you how do you account for its success? This is this seems to me to be how do you you were trying to defang something, but why do you think it has become so potent? Why do so many people believe in it and support it? It's a good question. I've really spent the last year trying to answer that exact question, moving backwards in time. I started with a lot of the reporting, demonstrating through original source documents exactly what's being taught in our corporations and our government agencies and our K through 12 schools. But simultaneously, I was doing a kind of archaeological excavation, figuring out where do these ideas come from? How do they attain power? And the answer is twofold. First is that it is a very attractive ideology in linguistic and emotional terms. They've built it since the mid-1960s in a way to maximize emotional impact, in a way to use the language of subversion to, to dominate and bully any opposition within the institutions. But then they've used a, a strategy, a, a Gramscian strategy, really, of, of lateral movement through, through bureaucracy. They knew in the by the end of the 1960s, when Richard Nixon was elected, that they knew that this street-based revolution with the swagger, with the kind of weapons on the California state capitol, alienated the vast majority, and at that time, what was called the silent majority of voters. So that they, they, they really retooled their strategy away from kind of European style violence towards a, a, a new program of entrance into elite institutions and then dominance through the bureaucracy. The first, of course, was the universities. All of the ideas we're talking about were well documented by even conservative critics by the 1990s. You were familiar with them and your reporting. But what they did from there was something brilliant, and we should give them credit for their strategy. They, they realized that that launching a public persuasion campaign, launching even a electoral political campaign was destined to fail, even in the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s. And so what they did is they set up to move laterally through bureau bureaucracies, first establishing uh, the model in universities, and then transposing it onto K through 12 schools, into the corporate HR departments, uh, and into the diversity and inclusion departments of federal and state government agencies. And so they deployed these kind of small teams of people, of political commissars, under this really gauzy language of equity and diversity and inclusion that was designed to lull people to sleep and to create a, an impenetrable or unopposable language. Well, you don't want a diversity department, you're against diversity. And so they used this, this cover language to import their ideology, establish itself in bureaucracy, oftentimes without any public approval, without any vote, uh, without any legislative uh, oversight. And then they were able to launder in their more extreme and radical ideas to the point where you have you know, our national nuclear weapons engineers being forced to apologize for their white privilege, to the point where the United States Treasury Department is teaching that the United States is a systemically racist society that must be uh, overthrown fundamentally. And then to the point where you're having kids as young as uh, elementary school being forced to categorize themselves as oppressor and oppressed. And when you hear just that, it seems astonishing. 
But when you go back and you trace the history 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, you realize that this was just an inevitable movement gradually, in, invisibly, through the institutions that has just merely been identified and come to fruition following the death of George Floyd, following the uprising of 2020. So now, the way you, th there's, a, there's a word you keep using here, which is the word they. And it, it's obviously, it, it's an easy word to use. What else are you going to use? Now, I'm not going to get all pronouny judgy on you, but, I, but there is a question of how conscious is this? I mean, it's, it's, it's not some vast Alinskyite conspiracy. I mean, there are obviously some Alinskyite conspiracies among some of these people, but it's not, it's, those are the, not the people in HR who are enforcing this. It, there's something intrinsically attractive, it seems to me, about these ideas. I mean, the, the notion of history is an increasing amount of justice, equality, and inclusion. This is, this, this is not simply a Marxist idea. This is something that, you know, liberals also kind of talk about, the growing diversity and equality of human beings. This is a democratic, small d, impulse, right? Every, everybody's equal. Everything's good. No one's excluded. Isn't, isn't it less ideology than simply the logic of democracy, the logic of resisting judgment, the logic of resisting discrimination, and seeing any kind of discrimination uh, as the problem, as opposed to distinguishing between good discrimination and bad discrimination. No, I, I don't think it's that, actually. And maybe I can elaborate on exactly who they is. In my view and in my reporting, what I've seen, uh, there are three large groups that are comprised within this collective day. First off, there is a small group of people, and you can see this in their scholarship, that that self-consciously applied Gramscian principles to the issues of race in the interest of subverting constitutional norms, subverting constitutional protections, and then overthrowing the system of capitalism. This is in the critical race theory literature in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Yep. They specifically yep. say we are a Marxist movement using the principles of Antonio Gramsci's cultural revolution in order, in order to severely change or abolish the protections of the First Amendment, freedom of speech, of the 14th Amendment, the individual protection under the law, and even the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which guarantees individual rights while they want to have collective group-based rights. And then ultimately, again, as always, the idea that property relations, economic relations are at the heart of inequality. Uh, so they wrote in a paper, uh, Whiteness as Property, that in order to achieve racial equality, you have to have uh, a temporary suspension of private property rights, equalization uh, of, of wealth and property, and only then should they be restored and, and, and society should be allowed to, to, now, and to this, recommend. You're, you're right. This is explicit. It's, 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 not, it's not hidden. It's, it's right in no. the open. And you can, so you can read I, it. I mean, it's in the yeah, journals. It's published, and it, it but, really is. And I've read them. You know, and I I was a political theorist, so I I had to tackle some of this stuff, you know, from the get go. I mean, it was not the most interesting stuff, but it's no, it's, it's absolutely there. But here's a question I've always had: Is that if if I were in mainstream journalism, I were trying to describe this thing called critical race theory, the word I would use is Marxist. It. it now, or you could, if you wanted to, you could say Marxian. You could, you could say, yes. well, it's, it's a particular variety of Marxism. 
neo-Marxism is probably accurate. Yeah. But and and but why wouldn't now again? If there is something vaguely conservative about something, people are always identifying it: conservative person this, conservative person that. When something actually is explicitly Marxist, why can we not call it that? And when we do call it that, we're then we're then hounded for being a alleged alleged conspiracy theorists or or extremists or or, or fanatics. When we're just simply empirically describing the intellectual origins of this movement. And, and it's not, you don't have to, it's not my analysis. They say themselves in interviews and their scholarship, we are Marxist theoreticians applying Marxist principles to issues of race. They've said this, Kimberly Crenshaw, the, the founder who coined the term critical race theory has said this. And there was an amazing moment that illustrates this question on, on Joy Reid. During the whole kind of controversy over the summer, Joy Reid had Kimberly Crenshaw come on air and she said, conservatives are saying that critical race theory is Marxist, uh, but critical race theory isn't Marxist, right, Kimberly? And Crenshaw, you know, you could see her reaction <laughs> saying, uh-oh, either she says, no, it's not Marxist, and she's lying. But what she does is she dodges the question. She says, well, conservatives are really bad, and they're really awful, and, and all of these things. And you see her ducking the question because she knows the, 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 the rhetoric. They've laid a paper trail for 40 years, 30, 40 years with this. But but it's under, it's, it's in a sense. So how, do, how do the editors of the New York Times, for example, presented with a, a bunch of basically Marxist critiques of American history from the academy, dress it up and say, this is the truth. This is, this is the reality of our America. Uh, it, it, and the reason why many of us got, were, were gobsmacked by that is because it is and was an assault on the very basic principles of liberal democracy, that special issue of the New York Times magazine. It was the most explicit affirmation of Marxist principles in any major institution of this country, I think probably in history. And yet it was regarded as bigoted to even say so. Well, the, the patterns of this have been have been resolved since the 1960s. That's when you first started hearing anything that was opposed to a Marxist-style revolution was by definition fascist. That language has been really revived in our current time. But what, what I think you need to understand to, to uh, this question is that our institutions now speak in a language of euphemism. They take Marxist ideas, but they accept their surface level definitions and then promote it back to the public as the truth. So they say, you know, diversity and inclusion is about diversity. Critical race theory is about just exposing systemic racism. They take the propaganda language at face value. They ignore the underlying evidence and scholarship because their, their market is really communicating not to the readers of Jacobin magazine who would understand this, but to the middle of the road, educated, affluent liberal. And when we were talking about the they, the first group is the critical race theorists, the kind of Marxist or neo-Marxist intellectuals. There are two other groups that are really important, though. And this is the, the second one is the audience of the New York Times. These are center left liberals who believe in democracy, equality, who believe in civil rights. And so what they do is they take this revolutionary ideology and they repackage it in a language that makes those liberals comfortable. They say this is about protecting people's civil rights. This is about protecting voting rights. This is about opposing fascism. And so they can lull that group to sleep. They can, they can 
really manipulate them into this radical coalition without them even realizing it because they're trying to capture larger territory within the center left. And then the third group of people, which is also important, are the average, maybe non-political center left, center right employees within these institutions who are bullied into accepting this hook, line and sinker. And, you know, I did done dozens of stories reported from for, for, you know, a year and a half. Every single time people are leaking me documents, they say, please keep me anonymous. Do not expose my name because that will mean professional and, and personal ruin. So when you put that together, you can understand the architecture of power. You have the very sophisticated neo-Marxist intellectuals who understand exactly what they're doing. You have the good intention liberals who run institutions on the ostensible principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then you have the mass silent majority that is intimidated into silence. And when you put those things together, that's how you get the situation we're in. You have the dominance of a small ideological minority that is willing, it is able to exert power and influence over all of our elite institutions across really every sector of our society. But what I find interesting, Chris, is that, for example, I have liberal people I've always understood to be liberal friends in all of this. And you say to them something like, well, do you really think that the Constitution of the United States and is really a front for simply white supremacy? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Obvious, isn't it? And, and you're, you, if you're denying that, your naivety, again, toward the way in which white power reasserts itself constantly is, is appalling. And in fact, your very inability to see this is itself proof white of privilege. your racism. <laughs> yeah. Well, racism more than anything else. I mean, yeah, white privilege allows you to be racist without consequences in, in, in their worldview. But what I'm saying is when I say that, these, these, are, not, these, these are not Marxists. They're capitalists. They're earning lots of money. They are, you know, they are engaged, educated liberals. But they seem to think it is so much truer that Nicole Hannah-Jones's version of America has more truth to it than 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 anybody else's. And they certainly aren't prepared to take an immoral stance that would in any way question that. I, I, I'd be curious in your experience. Do you think, though, that these are a a principled belief, or do you think that this is almost a defensive psychological maneuver? Because if they were to take the other side of that argument, uh, it would have negative consequences. So, is there a system of cultural incentives that leads them to this conclusion in a passive or unconscious way, or do they really truly believe this? What do you think? I don't know. Chris, I mean, all I know is that in fact, it doesn't make much difference because the reality is that they will not stand up against this. And if push comes to shove, they will be with these people, not against them. I mean, that I, that I, that I see everywhere. Yeah. And, 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 and I see it in a way because people come up to me a bit like you probably, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who's like, they can vent to because they know I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna tell on them, and they know I'm already in the pit of obloquy out there and out 
Outcastistan. And, and so they, and part of them are like, keep going, keep going. Oh, you see this? And then they start forwarding me stuff. I'm like, stop forwarding them to me and stop bringing them up yourself. You know, like I can't, and I'm easily dismissed, but there is a, I think there is a sense in which it's simply true that America's racial past has finally crippled and it's, it's, it's a terrible past in many ways. Let's not in any way prettify it. It has robbed the country's liberal soul of self-confidence. And, and, and it has just lost its will to stand up for a liberalism's resilience when faced with this accusation of being essentially sympathetic to or not hostile enough to the ugliest of racisms. I, I disagree with you on this idea that the soul of American liberal society has been robbed, and and because I think it is it is a, a lamentation that is uh, a really kind of niche lamentation that doesn't reflect most Americans' experience. It seems like to me that there are there is a a classical liberal objection that we see to woke politics, but that it is really caught in the same psychodrama that animates woke politics itself, that it can't escape from this because, you, you know, there's this kind of idea that we see that the uh, critical race theory or woke politics has captured the institutions. We understand that its effects are negative. We disagree with its, even if its fundamental principles, but then that premise is never continued to its logical conclusion that we have to oppose it, that we have to turn principled disagreement into actual tangible principled action. And so I think what we have is this really neutered or, or, or impotent response from the center left where we can write a letter in Harper's Magazine kind of delicately complaining about wokeism and that's going to stop it. But but is it really a letter from some center-left intellectuals going to stop utter institutional dominance and a multi-billion dollar structure of power that is that is incentivized towards completing this soft revolution? Of course not. That and and so I I think where I stand is what is really going to provide a counterweight is not a center-left internal disagreement which has, I think, proved itself powerless, but a, a, a firm uh, uh, conservative opposition driven by conservative states, driven by uh, a conservative future conservative Congress and president that is going to actually reshape the systems of power in this country to box in the soft revolution, to create countervailing powers, and then to protect American citizens from what I think is often abusive practices that are subsidized and funded by taxpayers. You know, this is a really unique moment where we have publicly funded and publicly subsidized intellectuals who are, who are aiming to subvert the state itself. It's really a kind of tough problem to unravel because they've embedded themselves in the bureaucracy. And my own goal is to figure out how we can use public policy in order to break up that relationship and to protect the majority of the American public against the institutions uh, that are in many cases waging war against them. 
And here's, I think, where many of us have issues, which is that, yes, we should be able to have a center-right conservative defense of liberal institutions, essentially. I mean, I think that to some extent, contemporary conservatism is a defense of liberalism in its broadest sense, uh, in its deepest mm -hmm. classical sense. But I look at the conservative movement and I see the forces that are behind this and I see uh, a deranged cult of, a, of, of unstable, mentally unwell lunatic who a year ago attempted to attempted quite consciously to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And I see a Republican Party that celebrates that, that celebrates violence, that as a, as a political tactic, that denies the legitimacy of our very basic electoral system. And that is now, as I say, in some of these laws, these anti-CRT laws, let me just, a few of them that just really took my breath away a little bit here. Here's, here's in Indiana. In Indiana, you can't, you can't be taught that, quote, socialism or a similar political system is compatible with the principles of freedom from which the United States was founded. Socialism, for fuck's sake. Or anything that anything's going to be banned that leads to, quote, division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class, or class of people. Another quote from another bill out there, an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological distress solely because of the individual's race or sex. That too has to be banned. In the Texas bill, we have, we, we prevent, you must forbid teaching that quote, slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from betrayals of or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States. I, this stuff is. Don't, don't you agree with that, though? I mean, I, I think all of those positions no, are I defensible. Don't. I think no, I think I'm, all of those are, def are defensible, for, and I'll go through them from from memory as best I can. But socialism, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Let's okay. Well, the, 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 you, socialism, socialism historically, if you look at tw the twentieth century, socialist and communist regimes were incompatible with fundamental freedoms and incompatible with the system of liberal democracy. That's evidenced by history. The idea of teaching that a student should feel shame on behalf of his or her race, I think is wrong and violates existing civil rights laws. You shouldn't be able to teach that, that black students, Jewish students, white students, Asian students should feel, not could feel, but should feel shame or guilt because of their ancestry. And then the other idea, teaching that 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 slavery uh, is a deviation from the founding principles of the United States, I think that's a, vi a viable and, in my view, correct interpretation of American history, of the founding principles, of the the gradual unfolding of the historical process in the United States. And so, if you take all three of those, I think, as legitimate, serious positions, the legislature has not only the 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 existing potential, but it actually has a mandated responsibility to shape public institutions, to shape the curriculum, to reflect the values of their voters and the public itself. And the problem I think we get with the classical liberalism or centrism is that they, and maybe, maybe you, mistake the status quo with neutrality. And, and you'd be comfortable that California, Washington, and Oregon 
mandate the inclusion of critical race theory within the curriculum. They mandate the teaching that the United States is a systemically racist nation. But you are uncomfortable with and would deny a state like Texas to say, actually, we want to mandate the exclusion of critical race theory. We want to mandate the exclusion of the idea that the United States is fundamentally racist nation. So my question to you, and this is a really representative one, is why is it okay for California to force kids to have CRT, but it's not okay for Texas to exclude it from their state curriculum? You're right. I'm not going to disagree with you. I do think that mandating CRT as the truth or as the fundamental reality of the United States is a grotesque dereliction of, of the duty to educate in a public sense, in, in the sense that now do I think, however, that airing arguments that have deeply criticized the structure of liberal democracy for its inability or difficulty in processing racial equality? Should they be front and center in anybody's education? Yes, they should be. It is a perfect, I don't think you understand. Agreed, yeah. Liberal democracy, unless you also understand its weaknesses, which are of course. So my view is that both should be taught as neutrally as possible because here's what I worry about. I worry that the country just, you have this outer warfare in which half the country is going to be teaching one version of reality and the other half the country teaching another version of reality. I think though that this country just begins to lose any connective tissue. The problem though is that there is no neutrality. The states, the existing structure of society, and I wish it wasn't this way, I wish local jurisdictions had more control, but the state legislatures determine a curriculum. They determine the set of values that is transmitted through the public schools to children. And they have to make choices. And there are no neutral choices. Politics is imbued in the there very are. act Here's of education. What I would say. Here was what I say that, no, there is a liberal principle here, which is that you can do both. You can do both. You can teach both. You can teach you can. more than both. And you should. The goal of public education is not indoctrination. It is education. And that's what liberal education means. It means we're not teaching you how to be an American. It's in teaching you how to think and how to be a citizen in a free society, which requires thinking through various debates and arguments, left and right. And what we have to guard against is an attempt to impose a single orthodoxy as opposed to allowing a multiplicity of them. And that's, I agree, I think it's worth resisting the mandating of CRT as long as we don't do the opposite in enforcing another kind of orthodoxy on people that may in some ways belittle our understanding of history and maybe lead us into slightly too pat and complacent views of our past and our future. I, I just I just think that you know giving my given my own experience and then also spending a lot of time with educators I, I think there is this stereotype this complete myth that somehow conservative legislators want to ban the teaching about slavery and every and I always ask give me a single example of a, a modern school district minimizing the evil of slavery or segregation etc and no one can come up with one because the fact is, is that I think most American schools do a pretty good job at covering the, the racial past in the United States, the history of racial injustice. But there is a point at the very uh, end of this debate 
where our institutions cannot maintain neutrality. You can present a wide array of theories and interpretations, but ultimately we, we come to the crux where we have to make decisions. And California has made the decision, for example, to teach that the United States is a systemically racist country. And I think, I think that that's wrong. Uh, I disagree with that. But certainly it's within the compatible with the constitutional law for them to put that in the curriculum. That's how it works. They make choices. And so I think it's also, by the same token, legitimate for Texas to say, actually, the United States, despite, d- despite X, Y, and Z, uh, is ultimately and fundamentally a good country. And, and to me, the astonishing thing is that, is that somehow that is seen as a threatening or transgressive or illiberal or author- authoritarian position. When 15 minutes ago, it was the dominant consensus opinion among almost everyone. And so you see how the playing field has shifted, that a, a, a dominant and I think a correct and true position is now used as evidence of an of a illiberal takeover of our institutions. And when you put that all together, I think we have an uphill battle to fight. But I, I reject this idea that there is uh, neutrality. I reject this idea that the status quo is, should be the, the grounds of our decision making. And I reject really this idea that we should take uh, a, a, a separate standard for different educational institutions that have different beliefs that they want to transmit. Because ultimately, in the practical sense, it's really just saying Texas, Tennessee, Florida, et cetera, you don't have the right morally or politically to determine uh, the curriculum for your kids. You have to accept either explicitly or tacitly the dominant ideology of our time, teaching that the United States is evil teaching that white people are fundamentally guilty and responsible for the history of injustice, and teaching that the only solution emerging from those premises is the wholesale subversion of American institutions. I I, I think that's untenable. And and I think that's why ultimately the center cannot emerge from from its own psychological limits. And they really can't emerge from within the structure of the liberal and far left that that they really, they, they can't, they can't separate enough psychologically, politically, culturally in order to be effective in resisting it. Ironically, in some ways, I'm just, this is a, just a thinking out loud. I would love to uh, mandate CRT for all the red states and mandate <laughs> your version of history for all the, the blue states, just to get them fired up and, un- and begin to grapple with their own, their own, because I think this is the problem, isn't it? That, that in some ways, in some of the states where these laws are going to be passed and have been passed, you're really, you're not, you don't have a prevailing atmosphere of CRT as the reality. You actually have other issues really that are predominant and you're simply bifurcating the country in this way and culturally siloing each particular generation by virtue of their ideology. And those of, I mean, those of us who kind of still have some vague hope for liberal democracy (laughs) are incredibly depressed by that idea that, in fact, there is no neutrality. There is no possibility of entering, everybody entering into the same liberal compact, that, that, that we are at war now in our society, that we can't agree to disagree. Do you not find that? I mean, you can say, and I think I would agree with you to some extent, the left has made this put us in this situation by making, by forcing us to accept these nostrums. But nonetheless, I, 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 can you understand why I'm reluctant? 
I, I do, but I, I think there are two points of optimism and I'd like to persuade you on them. The, the, the first point is that one of the greatest principles of liberal democracy in our system is this, the principle of federalism. The idea mm -hmm. that each state should have different laws that best suit its own citizens. Mm -hmm. And so within the, the broader system of liberal democracy, some divergence on curriculum, some divergence on policy, some divergence even on, on the promotion of public values should be permitted and actually encouraged between states. I personally think that if Berkeley, California or Brooklyn, New York wants to have a CRT curriculum, that they should be allowed to do so, that that's perfectly legitimate and, and an expression of their own, their own public will. But I also think that other, somewhere like suburban Orlando or suburban Austin, Texas, should also be permitted to have a, a slightly different emphasis in curriculum. And I think that the second point I would make is that if you spend time in red states, in suburban or exurban districts, I, I think it would put you at ease that these aren't kind of rah-rah, hyper-patriotic, jingoistic education where they're, you know, saluting the flag and, and, and you know, and, and, and promoting martial values. I mean, that doesn't exist. I think it is really a, a figment of the imagination of the kind of fevered imagination of of, of the kind of left-wing urban journalistic class. But you know, I live in a neighborhood now, I actually moved outside of, of Seattle about an hour, where on, on my street, uh, there's an F-150 or a Dodge Ram in every driveway. It is a, a different culture. Are those aircraft? Culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it's I'm diverse. I'm, I'm so not car. Yeah, I'm such a uh, fucking lefty when it comes to actual lifestyle. I, it's I, a big oh, truck. So, yeah, so there I'm is sure a, it's a, big uh, truck, yeah. a pickup truck American in every driveway. Truck. Yeah, it's diverse. It's about fifty percent of my my neighbors are, are are immigrants, minorities. It's diverse, but you can see even as soon as you leave the blue bubble that the the image that you get mm -hmm. of this MAGA cult as you put it, when you actually get on the ground within the institutions, local churches, local schools, et cetera, doesn't actually exist in the way that people fear. You know, my kids and the kids from my neighbors, they they learn about uh, different cultures. They learn about the history of, of the United States, both well, bad and good. Let me put this back on you though, Chris. Like, are you not too afraid? Have you not hyped a little bit the impact of this stuff, the actual impact of this? Have I, am I not guilty? for doing that a little bit. I mean, is this really affecting how the next generation is going to understand their own country? Are we, are we over-hyping something that, in fact, if we just take a deep breath and let this fad dissipate through the academy and become exposed, as it is being exposed, as a bunch of poisonous dreck nonetheless you know maybe we're maybe we're panicking too much this is what people this is what i don't think so dish heads tell me all the time calm down andrew you're you're getting too excitable about this it's not that big a deal it's just a process you know people like david from or you know can tell me look it's just a part of the process and in some ways this kind of has to happen for us to return to some sort of liberal order so that people of minorities can find a way to understand inequality that, that helps them understand their own dignity. I'm just, I'm just wondering whether we too have not overestimated the danger. I don't think so. And, and, and I, I think that if you ask that question retrospectively, there was a 
a popular line of thinking that, you know, look at these silly undergraduates in grievance studies programs. They're going to graduate from college and be unemployable. And conservatives really just laughed at this and said, oh, the universities are, are, are crazy, but it's confined to the campus. As you know, more and more institutions have replicated this campus model. You're famous for talking about this. And then you start getting into the serious uh, consequences of this to the point where you're having public schools resegregating, offering amenities, spaces, classrooms and programs segregated by race. You're having medical authorities and public health withholding the vaccines from white uh, Americans, uh, white men sometimes. And then you're having governing agencies that set actual public policy adopting what were once laughed off as fringe racialist theories as their dominant operating ideology. And so this is really a public policy question. And I think I find it really absurd if you if you have the opinion that this is really poisonous dreck and it's being subsidized by taxpayers and implemented by public institutions, shouldn't we then have reforms to those institutions? Shouldn't we then be writing new laws to rein in those institutions? and guiding them back towards the public good. Um, and shouldn't and I think we the be concerned is, in so doing of unintended consequences of barging into curriculums, intellectual life, intellectual the, debate? The, 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 assumption there, be the, the assumption there is totally wrong, though. The, the assumption okay. there is totally wrong. Barging into the curriculum. By just saying barging, you, you're worried about right-wing legislators barging into the curriculum. The curriculum is law. The curriculum right. is set by the legislature. If you're assuming that they are interlopers, you're already acknowledging the hegemonic dominance of left-wing ideology within the curriculum. Yeah. Whereas I'm not saying they should be barging in. I'm saying that they should reassert their pre-existing responsibility and authority to shape the curriculum. They've seeded it so that it feels like they're barging in. But the actual constitutional matter, the actual intellectual matter is that they have the responsibility to shape the curriculum. It is our curriculum as, as citizens, and we get to vote in legislatures uh, and legislators who are then acting in our behalf to shape that curriculum. And so it feels like they're barging in, but that just goes to show uh, how dominant it already is and how the public, through their legislators, have been really already forced out of these decisions. I'm actually asking to increase democratic representation. It's been hijacked by bureaucracies. It's been implemented undemocratically. And my view is that we need to harness the populist energy. We need to get a majority of voters. We need to win a majority of legislative seats so that then we can wield legitimate constitutional power to restore order, to restore our public institutions, uh, and, and to guide our public policy towards a common good and away from racialist left-wing ideology. Yeah. Chris, I wish I could. I mean, I'm I'm torn. I'm obviously torn from my deep belief in the American project to also my deep belief in pluralism, in allowing ideas to be vented. And now I, but I I do understand what you're saying. But I, but I, I why, why would why would the pluralism though not apply to the 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 fundamental pluralism system that we have is to allow different. In states, different local entities to pursue the vision that best suits them. But I get a sense that you think somehow you have a, an intuitive feeling that somehow the conservative or patriotic education idea is somehow illegitimate or, or discomforting. 
Why is it not just as legitimate? And why should they not have the power to determine their own destiny in the same way that the liberal and blue cities have with theirs? I understand. And, and, And I think what we're getting at here is a sort of my conservative distrust of populism, I'll be honest with you. That's that's the where we're at. I mean, I I'm basically with you essentially. I'm 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 I understand that populism has reasons for existence right now. Legitimate, good reasons for existence. And I feel myself cheering when Young Kin won in Virginia, because I felt like this is yes. this is something. I mean you read me, you know where I'm coming yeah. from. I'm just uh, I, I, I'm just always leery of populist uprisings with respect to liberal learning. I'm sorry. I just, I genuinely think now it may be that the days in which our elites can defend liberal learning or have the guts to do it may be over, in which case, fine. We've just one bunch of Marxists and a whole bunch of populists on the other side, then maybe that's what we've, I'll pick the populists over the Marxists. And I'm, I think, think that's that what I'm probably going to have to do next year. But you know, Glenn, Glenn Youngkin was what? He was the CEO of the Carlyle Group. I know. Uh, do I you know, think that I Glenn think... Youngkin is, go- is, is a kind of illiberal threat? And by regulating the curriculum and restricting abuse in the classroom, do you think that that threat is even remotely comparable in scale or scope? to the threat of critical race theory within Virginia's public schools? No. I agree then why that. can't you come However, to the, the conclusion? Then, and then, this then is- Young King, with the head of the Republican Party, be another thing, but I have a raving <laughs> <laughs> lunatic supported by people whose populism is definitely hostile to very basic principles of democracy is concerning. If, if, if I could vote for Youngkin every time I would, I just, I just worry that's not who we're going to get. We're going to get Marjorie Taylor Greene and not Glenn Youngkin. And I don't want uh, public education in this country to be determined by lunatics like her. And, and I also don't want tub thumping to be determining curriculum. I think these things require thought and study and, and circumspection and deliberation. And it's what elites should do properly. And I, you know, I do think parents should be able to control what their kids are taught, but I don't think Absolutely. I do think there are elements in which teachers have a responsibility to introduce ideas to kids that their parents may not have introduced them to, because that's that's what education is, right? So there is a slight balance here. And, and I'm just concerned that we're over, over-egging the populist pudding here. Uh, <laughs> horrible metaphor, but that, that, that there are forces here, Chris, that you, you yourself might be a little alarmed by if they really got wind in their sails. Yeah, but I, I, I would I would though always caution to make a cold hearted, cold headed rather analysis of of power. And so you have, I think, maybe the equivalent of 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 Marjorie Taylor Greene as someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're not viable national figures. They're really on the the kind of further wings of their party. And what I would propose to you is that Marjorie Taylor Greene dominates headlines in liberal magazines. Uh, She has been elevated by the left as a kind of symbol of right-wing lunacy, to whatever extent that that's accurate. Um, uh, (laughs) It is accurate, isn't it? But but Marjorie Taylor Greene's ideology is not determining the curriculum of public schools anywhere, while Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's ideology is determining public school curricula for millions upon millions of American kids. 
And so when you when you when you elevate them as equals, as equal threats, as equal powers, I, I, I think that it really mistakes the reading of actual power and, and gives gives the center left an easy out where they can say, I oppose critical race theory in schools, but we really don't want to give power to the lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so it provides this, what I think is psychologically a, a mechanism to avoid making hard choices, to allow a situation to remain culturally comfortable. Yep. But I think more deeply than that, it, it, prov- it, it allows them to, 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 to really abnegate their responsibility. And mm-hmm. I think if you truly believe that critical race theory is a poisonous ideology, if you accept the analysis that it has achieved a certain measure of intellectual dominance within our public policy and institutions, the only logical and responsible conclusion is to say, we need to take public action to stop it. And, and, and I think that that is, I, I feel like you personally are so close to being there. <laughs> but there is, I really do. You accept A, you accept B, and then you jump off the, you jump over the side of the bridge. I just can't. Get I think there I've been hovering way. on the edge of the bridge rather than. I, I but I, you, yeah. You're so I, close. I am close. Yeah. <laughs> but, and you're helping me. You're moving me. You've moved me today a little bit. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, I think, but I hope. It, let's talk about Joe Biden for a second. Okay. Uh, because I think of Joe Biden and all this. Now, what does he think of all this? Does he even know what's happening? Does he have any idea what critical race theory is? You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, when I've heard him talk about this, it seems like he thinks it's, he once referred to it as sensitivity training. That's yes. what he thinks is going. People are just being, for goodness sake, people are being told to be nice to each other. Stop being such an asshole. That's, that's Joe Biden's position. Now, I've also had a chance to talk to left center left democrats in this city and i get something very similar back which is look andrew you don't understand this country really is racist it's really deeply racist you should you should you should go to where i grew up you should come back and you know and given just how seriously racist this country is we this won't do any harm. Let us put a little bit of that into the curriculum. It might even do a little good. That's what I'm hearing back from those people. That's what Joe Biden is thinking. I think, yeah, I, I, you're probably right. And, and it's a rationalization, though. It's not oh, yeah. stemming from a principled agreement. It's not stemming from a conscious decision-making process. And my sense, and I don't have any inside uh, knowledge beyond reading the papers, is that you know the Biden administration is staffed and energized by the base of the progressive movement yeah. that has really realized that Biden is a caretaker president. The American public, I think, wanted an interlude from the stress and the drama of president. They, they voted in President Biden rather than the more progressive candidates who ran in the primary. I, I think because the American public wanted to take, take a break, take a breath, have an interlude presidency. But what we see at the cabinet and sub-cabinet level is that they're bringing in the ideology uh, into the policymaking process without Biden, I think, even being consciously aware of this in, in any meaningful sense. And so it's, it's look, I, I don't think Biden is a radical neo-Marxist. I think He's precisely the opposite, but it doesn't mean that he's providing the space and providing the, the, the administrative apparatus to consolidate the power of this movement 
and to expand the power of this movement. And that's where I'm really concerned, much more than the personal politics of Biden. I mean, who cares? Biden is a kind of non-entity within his own administration. Yeah, I'm thinking about the type, you know, this person in the middle of the system that is acquiescing to this for reasons that are not malicious, for reasons yeah. that are actually kind of well-intentioned. Also, of course, in Biden's case, just because of political organizational structure, like how could he start saying, hold on a minute, I'm not yeah. sure I'm in favor of discriminating on the basis of race across my administration. What, are you what is this equity thing you're talking about? Yeah. You know, if, if that happened, you could see the whole thing begin to unravel because it, it's built on such a large amount of constant buy-in. The, the minute you start saying, hold on a minute, things could get really dicey. And... And, and I, I, think think, really... I think you're right, too. And I think the fact that it's caretaking, and I do think the left is fully in control domestically, insofar as they can. I mean, they don't control the Congress, so they can't quite do what they want. But in terms of the executive branch, it is CRT all the way down. That's right. And, and, and I think that really, really bolsters the point that I try to make is that there's a false equivalence in power, the kind of again, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not have the kind of ideological power as a symbol as, as Alexander Ocasio-Cortez does. And the power is invisible power. It's irrelevant to the electoral status or the composition of the Congress. And I think that's why we really have to take more care and why we have to really be more concerned with it. Um, because the what we see in history is that uh, a revolutionary ideology, when it's attached to administrative power, becomes dangerous. And look, if there was a an equivalent kind of fascist or illiberal right power ideology attached to administrative power, I would probably be with you uh, in the same way that 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 you are uh, with me on this. But that's just not the reality that we have. It's very easy for anyone in the country to publicly denounce Marjorie Taylor Greene and publicly denounce uh, a right wing illiberalism. But what we see is that it's almost impossible for the majority of citizens, besides people like us who have an independent uh, role and platform, to even criticize this. And so when Biden, you, you, you know, is invisibly constrained by this power, don't we have to conclude that therefore that makes it dangerous? Because it is even more powerful than the president of the United States. And so in an in a, in a invisible or a institutional way, this is the status quo. This is the state of play. And we do ourselves a disservice by pretending somehow we live in a 50-50 nation of real cultural and political power. Here's what I worry. I worry that increasingly the next generation of Americans will, will grow up and enter a room and there'll be a, maybe a, a, a slightly unbalanced racial mix. And they will immediately... In, first of all, they will instantly notice it. It's the first thing they'll notice. Secondly, they will instantly identify it as a function of oppression. And thirdly, they will, they will instantly then believe that these kind of measures are necessary. That there is something so crude but compelling about the visual nature of race, particularly, that, that sort of is so compelling that, that for all the bad reasons, as well as good reasons, we like to categorize people instantly. That it's just that to, to say, look, it's more complicated than that. These people vary a whole variety of different individuals, regardless of mm -hmm. their race or sex or gender or, or anything else. They have 
individual unique talents to bring to any situation, their lives are so much more complicated and interesting than simply reducible to their racial characteristics. Let us not be trapped by groupthink in this way and by by racialized thinking. And that's, I think, I mean, the one thing I want to emphasize again is how can we positively, I mean, we can attack this as we should, I think, by calling it what it is, but we also need to celebrate the principles of liberalism, the principles of the individual, of the uniqueness of each of us that's not completely unrelated to where we come from, from different identities we might have held, mm -hmm. but is unique. Is, is, that's what's so great about America. That's what I loved about it. You got away. I, I came from a country that was obsessed with groups, classes of people, <laughs> and how they interacted. And you recognized everyone instantly by their accent as a code where they belonged in this hierarchy. And, and yes. now I come here, I came here and was like, Fuck yeah, this is all about whatever you can do as an individual. And now I see the same thing coming in through race. Like, that's all you see. And that's all that matters. And that's the first prism you put anyone through. And it drains life of its vitality and of its interest and its specificity. And it, and it utterly, I think, demeans the possibility of every individual to overcome and what to exploit in a completely unique way their own particular random genetic splice that they happen to be and the sum of their experiences. And, and I think we need to do more of, 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 of talking about that, how, how, how great that is, how fun it is, how in some ways the fact that people end up in different places is, not, is, is, is a feature, not a bug. I, I, I think you're absolutely right and, and really beautifully stated. And... I'm optimistic again, and 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 for for two reasons. The first is that you're absolutely right. People want to feel like they matter as an individual human being. People want to understand a sense of their own possibility, their own unique identity in the world. And this ideology, critical race theory, really is is a cynical, pessimistic, fatalistic, entrapping ideology that seeks to eliminate individuals. And, and then gather them into these opposing racial groups. And I just don't think that is compatible with the spirit of most people in our country. Most people in our country want to, want to celebrate the great individual achievements that we've seen from people of all different backgrounds, from Thomas Edison to Frederick Douglass to the men who went to the moon. We have a system that was created without the, the rigid feudal hierarchies of Europe, or the class-based hierarchies of England, but actually uh, a, a system that was attempted really from, from scratch based on these, what they thought were eternal principles of human nature, aspiring to exit the, the, the drudgery and the constrictions of the past and empower greatness of the individual. And I, when I talk to kids that are, are, are in my, my children's age or high school, they're still, they're still captured by that idea. Nobody wants to be shuttered into these deadening racial categories. They want to be inspired to achieve excellence, which can only be achieved initially as an individual. And I think there's a bigger point that is really important how we could, we could salvage this and, and something that I think is critically important and already happening. We have to get rid of this idea that conservative Republicans are the party of white Americans and the left, 
uh, liberal, democratic, is the party of minorities. It, it plays into this racial Manichaean conflict that I think has to be broken. And thankfully, what we're seeing right now is a revolt, among, especially among Latinos and Asian Americans, where in some jurisdictions, it's now about 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. And I think once we change that, our politics will start to change because we're punishing this ideology electorally and we're snatching away this really awful and inaccurate belief or message that this is, you know, whites versus racial minorities. It plays into the worst movements on both sides of the aisle. And I think if we can create a new electoral coalition where it's a kind of multiracial working class middle American values coalition represented by the Republican Party, and then this maybe a high-low coalition of elite uh, intellectuals with, 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 with their traditional constituencies in urban areas and among lower-income voters that they've you know, been, been dominated since the 1960s. It's not perfect, but I think that would mark an electoral and demographic change that would, in, that would disincentivize the bad instincts, perhaps on both sides, and provide a new sense that if we're representing, from my side, conservative or, or, or movement could claim to represent and protect that broad middle class, that broad multiracial working class. And I think to me, that's a way out. That's a way where we can actually then restore this idea of the individual as the guide star of our republic and, 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 and win again. If I were to write a speech for a a Republican politician. You should do it. Here's what I would say. I would say I am less interested in the 1619 project than I am in the 2419 project. I don't know where we are in the future. We are not going to be in these rigid racial categories. We are not. We're going to be miscegenated into all sorts of different hues and colors. We are going to mix. We are going to come out the other side of some of these racial integrations as a polyglot, emboldened, vibrant country. We're gonna overcome this. We're gonna be the first human society that has actually had within it serious racial divisions, and we have come through them, through our constitution, through our system of free market enterprise, through our, our, our liberal society, and come out the other end. And that's, instead of constantly harping on the bitterness of the past, let's look to the possibilities of the future. That's such a much more American thing. It's, it's what captures the American spirit. It's not constantly going over the oldest of grudges, the deepest of grudges. This is why people left Europe. They didn't come yeah. here to rest, to completely fixate on the ancient past as a form of identity that will never change. That is not America. Well, Chris, it has been really fun talking to you. I think you've moved me a little bit. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm just wrestling here. And I think it's important. I hope, I think my, I think dish heads are also wrestling. I think there are people, good people in the middle who are genuinely conflicted and trying to figure out the right thing to do. And, and I'm so grateful. I want to thank you personally, for exposing some of this stuff, literally finding this shit. 
I mean, I know people come to you with it now, which is part of the joys of being an internet journalist is that you just sit there and people give you shit and you just publish it. But nonetheless, pretend you're being a terrible investigative journalist and brilliantly finding these things. But nonetheless, it's been great and it's important. And I think transparency is crucial and journalism is better for that. And secondly, thanks for wrestling with this with me. I really, you know, I respect you and your work and I, and I, 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 I want this thing to work out for all of us. So and I think you've given, given us something to chew on uh, a little bit more and, and, and we'll be following this. So thanks for coming on and thanks for hashing this out in such detail and at such length. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun and I, I really do appreciate your open-mindedness and, and your optimism and your spirit and willing to, to, to get into the into that grappling without, you know, shutting it down. It's really important. And that's why I think people love to read you. Well, thanks, Chris. We will, we'll see you next time. More just casts ahead. A really promising, fun year. Lots of very interesting characters coming on. With all that, see you next week. Bye. Bye.